I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world. It's two years since the longest avowed war in U.S. history ended with a Saigon-style escape of fleeing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Today, the U.S. is involved in a war in Europe where, according to U.S. and European officials in the New York Times, Ukraine has too many soldiers in the wrong places, with hundreds of thousands dead and Joe Biden's political opponents urging negotiations. What's next? NATO's senior mentor for logistics, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, was commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe during the Minsk agreements on Ukraine. He commanded the 101st Airborne in Operation Iraqi Freedom and was a director of military operations in Kandahar, Afghanistan. He joins me now from Frankfurt in Germany. Lieutenant General, thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on going underground. We've had assistant secretaries of state on, national security advisors, presidents, never a commander of the entire U.S. Army in uh, Europe, I have to say. So let's just start with... Um, I don't know what you thought of the Salzburg and New York Times claiming its sources told them from the U.S. administration and European powers that Ukraine just has too many soldiers in the wrong places. That's why it's all going wrong. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm always annoyed with people from 8,000 miles away uh, making commentary or judgments about tactical situations of people who are actually on the ground in the fight, uh, especially when they choose to be nameless. So I, I would pay no attention to that assessment. I trust the Ukrainian general staff. Yeah, you've said before that uh, you don't like those uh, armchair generals from thousands of uh, miles away. What would you have done then on the call? There's a video call, according to the New York Times, on the 10th of August, uh, 2023. General Mark Milley, the UK's Tony Radikin, your kind of counterpart, uh, or the counterpart certainly to the uh, commander of the US forces in Europe, uh, the uh, General Christopher Cavoli, who is your successor, and, of course, General Zeluzhny in Kiev. What would you have said on the video call, then, as to uh, how to uh, go forward without anything too secret? I know you've emphasized the importance of uh, keeping information uh, secret a lot of the time. Well, I, I certainly would have told uh, Chairman Milley and Admiral Ratkin um, who, uh, that we would have never sent American or British soldiers into an attack like this without having already achieved full total air superiority. So criticisms of Ukraine for maybe going a little bit slower than we'd all like uh, without having given them the means to do it the way we would like is, I think, uh, unjustified and, and frankly, not very uh, helpful. Now, look, I, I think that the Ukrainians have done a good job adapting to the situation on the ground. And, and we know from history, no plan survives first contact. And the winner is usually the side that's able to make the adaptation most quickly. Ukrainians um, have decided to focus on destroying Russian artillery and Russian logistics, and that will eventually make it easier for them to finally get through these minefields. I mean, how could you say that it's going well if 14 million have left the country? There are maybe 400,000 dead. That's a figure that Colonel McGregor uh, said on Tucker Carlson's uh, interview. He, of course, was a former Pentagon advisor. Maybe 100,000 plus wounded hundreds uh, surrendering, tens of thousands of amputees. How is that going well? Well, if McGregor is your source, then our conversation is probably going to come to a close. He's He's been wrong from day zero uh, on all of this, and he echoes Kremlin talking points at every possible opportunity. There have not been 14 million Ukrainians leave the country. There certainly have been millions of Russians that have left, uh, avoiding conscription, avoiding mobilization, there is no doubt that Ukraine has suffered 
many casualties without a doubt. Uh, nobody, nobody hides that. And there are, I think, 4 million Ukrainian refugees uh, that are, uh, have left Ukraine to avoid what's happening in their country. But I think that Russia actually has a bigger manpower problem than does Ukraine. You won't fill up a school bus with the number of Russian soldiers that actually want to be in Ukraine today. So you don't believe there are 300,000 in reserve in case the United States enters the theater? Absolutely not. I mean, British intelligence just a few months ago said that they thought about 98% of Russian forces were committed in Ukraine. Now, we've been hearing reports about huge Russian forces being built up. I mean, I guess they're going to issue them wooden sticks. There is no equipment to give them. So, no, I don't believe there are 300. There's no, there's no equipment for the Russian forces. Why did uh, Zelensky fire huge tranches of the government then over corruption uh, amongst, amongst the uh, conscription scandal? The officials responsible for conscription, we've seen videos, of course, online of the horrific treatment uh, meted out in well, the streets. Why would of he not? Why, why would he not? I mean, there have been calls for Ukraine. Hey, you've got to clean up your act. So he's doing exactly what uh, you would expect the leader of a liberal democratic government to do, which is hold people accountable and to be transparent. Um, he has, I think, taken huge steps to try and change the culture and the perception of the culture of corruption inside Ukraine. Look, it, it's it's not a monastery there, that's for sure. But I think what they're doing while fighting for their survival uh, is remarkable. And the U.S. government, and I suspect uh, His Majesty's government, is the same on the equipment that is provided to Ukraine. The accountability of all of these things is uh, very, very strenuous. That's the job of the officers that are deployed there to help make sure equipment goes to where it's supposed to go. So I, I have great confidence in that. We'll, uh, we'll look into that further in, in a moment. We have had Chuck Spinney on, infamous for the Spinney report about Pentagon procurement as to uh, what's happening regarding corruption. But you are intimately involved with the war in Ukraine because you supervised forces. I mean, tell me about that trip you made to Kiev in 2015, was it? Uh, after Minsk One had collapsed. I, I understand that you were there. Uh, what, what were you doing in Kiev? We had the mission at U.S. Army Europe uh, to help uh, provide training for Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, they had a large training area at a place called Yavariv in western Ukraine near the city of Lviv. Uh, our task was to turn that training area into a training center, something like what we have at Hohenfels, Germany, for example, uh, with cadre and to, and to give uh, Ukrainian battalions and eventually brigades a place where they could train and prepare before they deployed to what was then called the ATO, the Anti-Terrorism Operation Zone. So I was I was in and out of Ukraine probably a dozen times uh, during 15, 16, and 17. You don't think that was a violation of the Minsk Accords? I mean, were you responsible for the troops that on the 22nd of January 2015 that uh, killed or wounded 33 in a bus shelling? The 100 civilians who died in Novorossiya uh, in, in Donbass? You, you trained these people who killed all these civilians in Donbass. Uh, I think you're, uh, that's quite a leap to say that I trained them, the ones who killed them. For sure, I'm very proud of the job that we did with the several different battalions of Ukrainian troops that cycled through the training center 
Uh, I am not familiar with what unit might have committed that, uh, whether it was an accident or for whatever reason it happened. I, I don't know anything about that. You supplied a Kozak armed vehicle to Ukraine. Do you not think that that was a violation of Minsk one, which was from September the fifth, twenty fourteen, ahead of Minsk two, which is on the twelfth of February, twenty fifteen? Wasn't the supplying of the Kozak uh, armed vehicle? Because I understand you met with the um, Ar Arseny Avakov on the same day. Okay, I don't know what a Kozak armored vehicle is. I mean, you don't you don't think anything you were doing was in violation of Minsk agreements? Absolutely not. I mean, in what in what way? We we were providing training in Yavoriv uh, for Ukrainian battalions that cycled through to improve their capabilities. I'm. I'm having a hard time uh, following you on how this might have been a violation of any Minsk agreement. Okay, the Kozak is an armed personnel uh, carrier, and uh, we now know from Angela Merkel, the then chancellor, that the Minsk agreements are a way to uh, arm and presumably train the Ukrainians ahead of conflict. So were you not an intrinsic part of that violation of the principles of Minsk which was ratified at the UN Security Council on the 15th of February. Yeah, UN Security I, I Council know. Resolution 2202. I don't know where you're getting your information from. Training is not a violation of Minsk. Uh, what they agreed to in Minsk, of course, was to pull back. And I think the uh, OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, would tell you that about 90% of the ceasefire violations came from the Russian side. So maybe you probably should, should talk to them. But training, and then, of course, the U.S. government uh, made the decision to provide counterfire radar to the Ukrainian side during this period. Uh, that happened during my time there, and uh, we helped train them on that. I was continuously frustrated that uh, we could not get approval to provide javelin anti-tank weapons uh, to them, at least during the, the first two years of this. In March 2015, you said there's direct Russian military intervention in eastern Ukraine, and then the German Secret Service said they're just a few armored vehicles. So why do you think the Germans back then were saying about what you were saying, and Philip Breedlove, Supreme Commander of NATO forces at US European Command, they were saying this is dangerous propaganda that there are 40,000 troops on the border. You know why I'm asking these questions, of course. I'm growing increasingly curious. I'm asking these questions because what it seems to be is that you were catalyzing this conflict. Because why on earth were you saying there were 40, part of this, as the German Secret Service, BND said, propaganda operation, saying the Russians were about to invade when Russia was putting its faith in the Minsk agreements, which, as we know from Angela Merkel, were just a ploy. Yeah, there's zero proof that Russia was putting any faith in the Minsk agreement or any proof that they were living up to the Minsk agreement. So I, I am having a hard time figuring out why you think I personally was helping to catalyze that this conflict would actually happen. You can be sure that I was doing everything I could uh, within my authority to help Ukrainian soldiers be as well prepared as they could possibly be. I was at the same time working with Ukrainian general staff to encourage them to be more transparent with their defense budget so that the RADA could have oversight over defense spending the way we do in the U.S. and other Western countries. Uh, I've visited multiple different Ukrainian 
sites, uh, industry sites, uh, headquarters. I wanted them to be as ready as they could be. That was that was my task. Did you meet people from the Azov Battalion? No, I did not. You met no one from the Azov Battalion because, of course, that would have been against the uh, bipartisan amendment passed in the House of Representatives by Representative John Conyers, who uh, outlawed all support for the Azov Battalion for its Nazi uh, orientation. So if we go back to uh, what it was like to be the uh, commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, do you not reflect on the fact that hundreds of thousands dying in Europe now is part of a legacy of failure by U.S. forces in Europe. What are they, about 100,000 U.S. forces there now? The last time there was a war in Europe was it the destruction, literally, of Yugoslavia. And that ended up as a NATO, as a sort of training ground for those who would commit 9-11. We know Osama bin Laden's troops were in uh, Bosnia training. So what is, have, you, are you, have you been protecting national security for the United States in Europe? So I would tell you that the war, Russia's war against Ukraine uh, now is what failed deterrence looks like. Uh, the failure of the West to react strongly after Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, the failure of the West to enforce President Obama's red line after Russia supported the Assad regime using chemical weapons against their own people in Syria, and the failure of the West to react with any real consequence after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And then you add that to the fact Germany was still building Nord Stream 2 as late as deep into 2021. Uh, we looked a mess after, with our uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and our own domestic problems in the United States after January the 6th. You could almost imagine how the Kremlin would assume that they would be able to roll over Ukrainian forces and that there was no way the West the United States, Germany, or any of us would be willing to stick together that the way we have. So that's what I mean, that failed deterrence. The Russians were pretty sure they could get away with this. Um, and so I think if we failed, it's, we failed in demonstrating that we were going to help Ukraine defend itself and hold Russia accountable. So yes, I, I will accept that criticism. I should say Anthony Blinken himself said the chemical attack was not a slam dunk. Many said it was a false flag. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, I'll stop you there. More from the former commanding general of the US Army in Europe and current NATO senior mentor for logistics after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe and current NATO senior mentor for logistics. Ben, you were, uh, before you became commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, at the 101st Airborne. Uh, it's two years uh, this week that the U.S. left Afghanistan. What, what is the 101st Airborne? Because, you know, people find it difficult to remember all these different uh, divisions, uh, different, uh, I mean, it's complicated enough. Uh, the other day, someone was saying how many four-star generals there are now in the uh, U.S. military. So what is the 101st Airborne? So if you ever served in the 101st Airborne Division, of course, you'd, you'd, know. Never, be <laughs> you'd never be confused about who and what it was. Um, it is one of the uh, 10, at the time, 10 divisions in the U.S. Army. A division typically has somewhere between 15... 16,000 soldiers in it. Um, I was a brigade commander, a colonel, 
in the 101st Airborne Division, uh, commander of the 1st Brigade during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, we ended up spending most of that first year of the war in northern Iraq, uh, south, of, south of Mosul. Um, I served four different times uh, in that division, so you would say that was my regiment. That was who I was most affiliated with when I was in tactical units. Was that a troubling time? Because, I mean, I remember, I mean, the famous film Scarface by Brian De Palma, he only made one future film after that, which is called Redacted, about the 101st Airborne Stephen Bale Green, who, uh, who went into a house in Mahmoudia, raped a 14-year-old girl, shot her in the head, then shot her sister dead, then shot her parents dead in Iraq. Is that the 101st Airborne? No, we were never in uh, Mahmoudia, uh, but... Well, he served for the 101st Airborne. Okay, he, he may have at some point, but um, certainly not during my time. Uh, what I am troubled about is that for 20 years in Iraq, and 20 years in Afghanistan, we never had a clearly defined objective except for the very first year in both of those places. After that, uh, none of the administrations, Republican or Democrat, um, was able to clearly articulate a clearly defined objective, why we're here. And so you end up spending uh, almost two decades uh, and trillions of dollars and lost thousands of lives of our own, not to mention everyone else that was killed or injured, or wounded, um, without having uh, accomplished what we originally set out to do because no president was able or willing to say, this is our objective. Well, every, in fairness, everyone kind of says that kind of thing now. What, the $2 trillion has left uh, the, the U.S. public money. But why did people lie in the 101st Airborne about what was happening in Afghanistan? Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, this was in the Washington Post, uh, which uh, had 2,000 documents leaked to them, said in an interview, we're making some steady progress in 2008. While we now know secretly this 101st Airborne commander was urgently pleading for more U.S. reinforcement, seeing failure. And uh, we know that Mike Flynn, who was, uh, of course, became National Security Advisor, who's been ongoing underground, questioned uh, the entire policy while it was going on. What's wrong with the 101st Airborne that members of this division knew secretly it was going wrong and were making public statements that were the opposite, thus stopping the United States public from understanding the war they were spending so much blood and treasure on. Okay, well, you're, you're about as wrong as you could possibly be. This is not about the 101st Airborne Division. This is about uh, all of us in, across the U.S. military. The 101st was only a small part of what was there, so I don't, I don't know where you get your conclusion from. But Did you know Major General Jeffrey Schlosser? Yeah, of course I did. Um, and, uh, but I can tell you also when I was in Afghanistan, well, first of all, when I was in Iraq two times, I felt very confident myself at the end that we had made progress because we were having to come up with metrics such as how many Iraqi battalions have been created, how many schools have been built, how, you know, how many elections have been held because there was no clearly defined political objective. So the objectives became something that could be measured. And so I felt very good about what we had done in the first year I was there. Uh, I was there again year three of the war in Iraq, where I was responsible for operations all over Iraq as a colonel. And then in Afghanistan, I was there from the summer of 2009 until the end of 2010. I really thought, you know, it was, this was working. 
I mean, I really thought it was working. Now, obviously- Work, Working as well as the Ukrainians are working right now against the Russians? Okay, this is not even a, a, that's a ridiculous comparison. It's two completely different situations. What I'm trying to say is that um, General Schlosser is not lying. All of us were doing our best to try and meet the mission, uh, whether it was protect Afghans, build Iraqi capacity, find jobs for people so they would do something other than build IEDs. That's what we were trying to do. And I really thought when we left Afghanistan, Kandahar specifically at the end of 2010, I thought this might actually work. Obviously, as I look back on it and watch the, the catastrophic end of the war in Afghanistan, I realized that, you know, I'm a little older and wiser. We never had an objective. No American taxpayer ever paid a penny for that because no president ever had to explain it to them and raise taxes. And so most of the American population was disconnected from it. Uh, we thought Pakistan would be an ally. Obviously, they were not. And, and we allowed Taliban to have safe haven there. And we also made a huge mistake, and I was part of the problem. Uh, we built an Afghan security force that looked like us, which is great as long as you have endless logistics, overwhelming firepower, and thousands of contractors. When you take those away, this Afghan security force that looked nothing like Afghan culture, it collapsed. And that, that was a failure. There's, I, can't, I can't walk away from that. You said it was great, but is it great? I mean, what, name a war the United States military has won, and isn't actually the US military better at assassination? You know, it was successful killing La Mamba in Congo, Trujillo in Dominican Republic, Allende, Chile, in the past. And then it's successful at destabilizing in terms of coups. But in terms of military operations, actual military operations, it fails everywhere it goes. I mean, we've only just yeah. named uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, of course, Libya is in chaos, Syria in chaos. And, uh, you know, it's been sort of at war with Cuba since 59. And uh, there's a higher life expectancy in Cuba than the United States now. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure what question you're, you're asking me. Is the U.S. military that you commanded in Europe useless and a waste of U.S. public money and taxpayers' money while people uh, die in Hawaii, maybe a thousand uh, died in Hawaii in the past few weeks? People of East Palestine in Ohio still do not have clean drinking water at home. A thousand a week are shot dead in shootings. Okay, none of that has anything to do with the... U.S. military, but I can tell you this, the U.S. military exists to protect the United States. And by being at the highest level of readiness, which every other army in the world seeks to emulate, you know, we have deterred Russia, China, and others from ever attacking the United States. That's our principal purpose. Uh, are we perfect? You know, of course not. Um, Wait, so uh, you think, and you thought about this when you were commanding general, commander of U.S. Army in Europe, that China and that Russia wanted to invade, invade the United States? Our allies. No, but, you, no, but you, didn't, you didn't seriously think that Russia or China wanted to invade the United States? You're not listening uh, because you don't want to. Russia, we know, the Soviet Union, we know, had plans to attack European countries. They did attack European countries. Uh, that were uh, in Eastern Europe, and that we know they had plans to attack Western I'm Europe. I'm talking after the fall of the Soviet Union now, uh, and expenditure's gone up, obviously. 
after uh, U.S. support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which morphed into the 9-11 attacks, which increased the Pentagon budget. But you surely didn't think when you were in Europe that the United, that Russia and China wanted to invade the United States. Again, you're, you're not listening for sure. I mean, yes or no, did you think they want to do that? They were going to, I said, they were going to attack our allies, that uh, Russia, without a doubt, would have, if we were not prepared, and if they thought they could get away with it, they would have attacked into Baltic countries. Um, they, they say this all the time. They talk about this all the time. They, they clearly have, uh, would have done more if the West had not stuck together and stopped them after their attack into Ukraine. Now, of course they would. China um, has demonstrated that they're willing to use uh, all sorts of different means to threaten our allies in the Indo-Pacific region. And so if you think, if you can step back from this conspiracy theory of yours, you could imagine that the West in the philosophical way, the West, which would include Korea, South Korea and Japan, for example, as well as Australia, this is, we are, we're getting ourselves organized. The international rules-based order from which we have all benefited since the end of World War II, but which China and Russia both hate, um, we, are, we are getting ourselves organized to prevent them from damaging this order, which is the best chance to help give people a, some kind of a prospect and, and liberal democratic societies to prosper. Okay, just one final question. As you say, the rules-based order in the global south, especially after the BRICS summit, doesn't really uh, play very well, given Iran 53, Guatemala 54, Costa Rica in the 50s, Syria 56, 57, Egypt 57, Indonesia 58, British Guiana 53, North Vietnam 43, 73, Laos 59, Congo 1960, France 65, Brazil 62, Cuba 59, Bolivia 64. I've got a list. So the rules-based order, let alone that prison Guantanamo, is still there when President Obama wanted it closed down. Doesn't it show the president doesn't actually have the power? Who was controlling you as the commander of US forces in Europe, really? We know now there are leading presidential candidates, RFK Jr. and Trump, of course, others, opponents who want the Ukraine war to wind down and have negotiations and stop the money. Do you think uh, there's something in it that uh, actually the US military is good at assassinations and destabilizing countries? And RFK Jr. says, killed his father and his uncle, JFK. They're good at destabilizing US society and international society. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Everything I'm asking is just factual. Yeah, so you think that US military has something to do with the death of John F. Kennedy and Robert The Kennedy? military industrial complex that Eisenhower referred to. Look, I, I don't I don't know where you get your questions from or how you do your research. Well, you know what Eisenhower said. RFK Jr. is not a leading candidate. Donald Trump has been indicted four times and about 71 or 91 different charges against him. I seriously doubt he's going to be president again. He certainly shouldn't be. But look, it was interesting that long list you went through. Most of those were 60 or 70 years ago. So um, do we have a perfect record? Of course not. Um, but I would say this, I, I would put um, our soldiers up against uh, Russian soldiers, Chinese soldiers, and you can count on American soldiers do everything they can to protect innocent people and protect what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Um, yeah. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, thank you. 
Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Saturday to talk about the IMF and World Bank in the shadow of BRICS with World Bank WHO Global Preparedness Monitoring Board economist Professor Jayati Ghosh. But until then, keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, then head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.